This podcast is part of the How We Are Network. For information on this episode and many other like-minded shows, visit howweare.org. That's H-O-W-W-E-A-R-E dot O-R-G. Happy holidays and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. Thank you for joining us. We've been having some pretty downloaded episodes the past couple shows. And uh, if you are a new listener, thank you very much for joining us. If you are an old listener, thank you very much for staying. The guest this week is Chad Peterson, the bassist of the, I would define as legendary hardcore band, Strife. More on him in a moment. Let's get some business out of the way. Propertyofzack.com. They are our good friends. They post the show when it gets published, and we just love them. So visit propertyofzack.com and become educated on everything that is happening within the independent music world. Review the show. So hop on iTunes, type some sentences about the show, give us some stars, whatever you feel like doing. Appreciate that. It's slowed down recently, and I understand everybody's busy, but if you haven't done it and you listen to this show regularly, please... I beg of you, because it makes the show look cooler. There's there's a bunch of positive things that come from it, so I really do appreciate it. If you are not visiting the website, go there now, 100wordspodcast.com. All of my previous guests, not every single one of them, but a lot of them are sending me their sort of top 2013 lists, whether that's specifically in regards to music or whether that's just like, hey, here's some great stuff that I did and you should probably pay attention to. Visit the site and uh, I'll be posting it pretty much all the month of December. So look back on the year. That is what I feel like December is all about everybody's very busy you know planning for the holidays traveling doing all this other crazy stuff but i usually like to try to like slow down and look back at the year see what i learned see what i liked that sort of stuff so anyways let's talk about chad peterson so this is the first time that i ever recorded an interview of like very late at night like uh he was able to get me into a show and we met up afterwards so i honestly i think the interview we started at like 11 at night If it sounds different, it is. I think Chad was tired, I was tired, and we kind of just, I don't know, we were pretty, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, punchy. You know when you get like silly, you're up late, or you have been up late all week, and you're like, oh, you know, here, sure, I'll do an interview at 11 at night. That sounds reasonable. For those of you that are used to kind of the structure of all the previous conversations I've had, there is no structure whatsoever here. We definitely bounce around all over the place. But I think it's a really, really cool conversation. And because of the uh, late night punchiness, uh, I think we, you know, dove into a lot of things that, you know, I might not have thought of, you know, when I was very, uh, you know, rest, well rested in the middle of the afternoon or something like that. So I think you will enjoy. Thank you for Chad for doing it. You know, after a long day at work, he didn't need to sit down with me at 11 at night, but he did. And that's awesome. Without further ado, here is Chad and I will talk to you afterwards. I appreciate that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna divert this. I'm gonna take you back in time, Chad. 
So I'm going to take you back to, uh, let's see, probably 90, I want to say 95, 96. So like that was me when I personally started to uh, be exposed to hardcore and punk and all that stuff. Um, so the, the One Truth video, the tour video you guys put together, that probably, like that opened up my eyes to like, so this is what tour is. So this is what like, because I mean, before that, as a kid, you don't really have a concept of a band touring in the sense of like, they just show up and they play and that's it. You don't think like, oh, they drove eight hours to get here or they drove like, and so like watching that video was just like, well, first of all, I mean, I was like, I want to go on tour immediately after watching that. (laughs) And then, like I said, it kind of solidified the concept of like what touring actually is. And like, it is this unglamorous yet hilariously funny thing that you encounter the fact that you guys put that together must have been hellish like in editing it and like I mean was it one of those things that the idea came to you guys like kind of presented or you guys were like we want to put together this this video well we did the video basically we had a friend at the time mm-hmm. I quote friend um, named Darren Doan okay, yeah. who was <laughs> responsible for doing a lot of videos right. uh, back in our day he did a ton of videos for like 10 foot pole Pennywise yeah. and saw Crashers uh, we did the Blink-182 video and yeah. he was like hey you know I think you know if you guys are going to go on tour I should come along and bring a couple guys and we'll document it okay yeah, yeah. and uh, all the other stuff in terms of like you know the regular van life the shows things like that that was all pretty much the natural part of it the, right editing and the follow-up and getting the video over to the label for production and distribution was basically handled by his company. Right, right, right. I think um, for the most part it was like Andrew and Sid at the time might have spent a lot of or, or a lot of hours just sitting there kind of like watching like a lot of real like right. real footage and kind of like keeping up to date with what Darren was uh, putting together as his final concept for the video but the uh editing and the end result of it is just you know it just one right. day it was filmed and it just seemed like it came out was it was it weird watching that whole thing like as a package like after it was obviously done and just like oh wow like <laughs> like that was weird I was portrayed this way I didn't feel like because it I mean it did focus on each band member which I thought there were so many unique things about it just because that hadn't really been done within the quote unquote scene so to speak yeah I mean there's what's, what's funny about that video is it actually we were just talking about this the other day we were on the east coast playing a few shows and right. uh, we were talking about certain things that were in the video and laughing about them and then talking about things that didn't make it to the video and wondering whatever happened to that stuff right like, right right we would want to see this like <laughs> how can we get this out there now but yeah um, like there was this whole like cab sequence in Chicago where we got chased down by a cab driver who like pulled out and started waving the gun and stuff and I, I remember that was like I think it was the very end of the video there was just like snippets of it you guys yeah. were all like hiding in the van or something and there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot more there's a part right. where we rush out of the van and like <laughs> rush up to this giant cab driver and the whole like car chase that took place through <laughs> the streets of Chicago that disappeared yeah yeah just home. magically went away yeah um, we also filmed this video for uh, the song To the Surface uh-huh. like in some woods that we just pulled off the freeway and started like walking through the woods like where's that right, you know, that's right. Like, all on the same trip and it's just gone but right. um, you know there's there's things in there as a adult you look back to and you just see yourself as like this I wouldn't maybe not innocent but right. kid who's just like what the fuck did, was right. I thinking you know right. in his van and driving all the way across the country and ending up in like Syracuse and yeah yeah 
But those shows were awesome, man. Oh, yeah. I would love to just do that 100% all over again. (laughs) Right, right, right. As you get older, it's like, you know, touring when you're a kid is never the same as touring when you're an adult. No, not at all. It's still fun, and you still look forward to every show you do. And it's like, I think it's evident, especially like in our live show. Right. That we're still really excited about what we do, and especially about getting out and playing the songs off the new record. And, you know, still trying to grow a scene that we can go to any show and flash back to, you know, maybe the first time you ever saw a hardcore show where there would be anywhere from 700 to 1,000 kids there. And right. now it's like 250, 300 kids on any given night is like considered a good show. Yeah. And it's just something that, it's a message that we've been trying to get across in the hardcore scene forever. Right. Where you don't just have to sit at home and watch a show streamed online or watch footage from a show you can actually leave your house <laughs> and attend something and yeah. go out to a show and see a band play and it's it's funny because we'll say it time and again in interviews it's whenever you go to whenever we used to go to shows right we had to go to shows to find out about the next show of course because there was these things called flyers that you would pick up at shows and they would tell you where to go the next weekend right right. and you would look at it and say like holy shit of course it is approval and outspoken that's fucking awesome I saw outspoken two weeks ago and they play all the time but I'm fucking there yeah I'm I'm there because there is nothing else to do (laughs) I love going to shows right 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 rather than I saw outspoken two months ago or you know, I saw a chorus of disapproval do a reunion at the showcase theater. I don't need to see it yeah. again. Yes, you fucking do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to get out <laughs> and you need to go see these shows. Right. But now kids will, you know, they'll sit at home and they'll talk on message boards about, you know, going to this show and going to that show. But it, it's just not the same. There's just not as big of a turnout anymore. And yeah, it's true. To be perfectly honest with you, it's not that the turnout affects how. Strife approaches a show because mm-hmm. if we play a show and 30 kids show up we're going to play a show just as hard as if there's 300 kids there sure sure it's more or less just kind of watching a scene that we've been a part of since we were 15 years old deteriorate right in a road right which isn't really deteriorating because in all sense and purpose the scene right now is bigger than it's ever been of course the accessibility is there in ways that it never has been. Yeah, it's more kids know about hardcore. More kids are buying records. More kids right. are watching videos. More kids are buying merchandise. But right. more kids are definitely not going to shows. Right. They're interacting with. They're interacting with it as a very. It's a passive interaction. Yeah. 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 It's like saying like, oh yeah, I picked up the new Terror album. It fucking rules. I love it. But right. You know, oh, they're playing in Connecticut this weekend. Are you going to go? No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. But I love that record. Yeah. You <laughs> do not know Terror until you've seen Terror live. Right. It's I've seen them many times before, and we just played with them this last weekend in Syracuse. And it, we did it at this community center where all of us played on the floor. There was probably like 300 kids there. Yeah. And even with kids diving over every single band member's head. Right. They are the absolute tightest band I've ever heard live. Yeah, yeah, they're a machine. And it's, you know, you can watch them in a club up on a stage, you can watch them opening for big bands, you could watch them, like, headlining their own shows or whatever, which are generally great shows that draw a big crowd, but the shows where, like, we get to experience playing on the floor, being part of the crowd, not having to be on a stage, not having to worry about a barricade. Right. 
and then just watching them do something like that night after night with how fucking tight they stay and not miss a single beat is <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. Right, right. So that's something yeah. you need. That's something you need to yeah, like you, you said, can, witness and experience. Yeah, you right, can right. sit home and listen to a record that's pieced together. It's not recorded live, and you know, unless you're the Bronx and it's the first album they put out. Right, right. Like, oh, we're in a room and we jam the shit out. Right? Exactly. For the most part, people are just sitting in a studio going through things part by part by part, and right. it's not the same as going out there and watching them replicate the songs that you love hearing. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the part that we wanted to really bring across in the documentary was we wanted people to experience what being on the road was actually like. Being out at these shows was right. like, you know, it's like, we'll get up there and we'll play through and through and the camera will be behind the drums and all you hear in the opening sequence of that song is just the fucking drums. You right. can't hear a single guitar. No, not anything. Bass, yeah, yeah. But the camera shot out right through the drum set and you just see 500 kids going absolutely ape shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that we just want to convey, you know, and make people understand that it really is part of you being part of a scene. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It opened my vision for what, I mean, yeah, what you could do, obviously, like, as a touring band, as a musician, as, you know, a, a fan of music. Like, it just opened all these avenues up where I was just like, all, I'm almost positive that I wore one version of it out that I had to buy another copy on VHS because it's like I just kept watching it because it was just like, oh my gosh, like, this is this is everything. It was funny. We played with this band in Holyoke, Massachusetts uh-huh. this last weekend. I shit you not. Yeah. As... The guy is up on stage. He, before they start the next song, he actually reached, he walks over by the PA and he grabs a copy of the One Truth VHS. <laughs> he walks back out in front of the crowd right. and he says, This is the video you guys need to watch. <laughs> right. He said, This opened my eyes to touring. This is the best tour documentary I've ever seen. And if anyone here needs to borrow it, yeah, please good. come up and see me after the show. <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, that's incredible. It's, like, it's just of... it's cool that obviously that's still a touchstone for so many people, and there's still so many fond memories attached to it. Especially because, like you said, obviously as it's aged, and you can look back on it and be like, oh, like that's pretty fucking cheesy, or that look that looks bad, or whatever. But it's like, no, there's there's obviously something inherently uh, honest about it, and that's exactly what it was. What was funny was, you know, as we kind of. We were stoked, first of all, that this dude brought something out that we haven't seen in years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Andrew probably has a copy of it. I think I have a copy somewhere, but the rest of us are just kind of like, okay, first of all, you need this thing called a VHS, VHS. player. <laughs> Try to find one of those that first. Yeah. Maybe looks like a toaster. Right. And it's, it was just this whole Yeah, thing. yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so, but you, you, you yourself, born and raised in like the, the valley and. No, I was actually born in Las Vegas, and me um, too. You were yeah. like you were one of the old, like. That's weird. Really? People don't. People aren't born in Vegas. Yeah, I mean, do people like when you say that? Do people are like, oh, you're born in Vegas? Like they think it's kind of weird because I don't know why, but for some reason, people think that I came out here from the East Coast or something. Uh huh. Because they're like, oh, I hear a little bit of like a accent in your voice. I'm like, that's just how I talk. Man. <laughs> I mean, it's, right, it's, right. I don't know. It's just weird. But, that's weird. So Vegas, um, yeah. Because that's yeah. all All I get is just like, what the, who was born in Vegas? People, you go there to retire or you go there to gamble. Like, no one's born there. Well, people that were born in Vegas leave Vegas. Of course. And it doesn't take very long. No, not, not at all. Um, my family moved to Southern California when I was about five years old. Okay. 
And we started out in Ventura County. We ended up in Oxnard, Pouring, Emi, Ventura. Okay. And then yeah, we kind of yeah. grav- gravitated a little bit south to the Canal Valley, Thousand Oaks area. Sure, sure. Um, what did you? Pr- what were your parents doing when you they were um, out there in Vegas? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. Uh, my mom was just a regular housewife. Sure. And uh, Do you have my, brothers and sisters as well? Or? I have a sister okay. who's uh, two and a half years older than I am. Okay. Who has... I, I, I do need to... Uh, also footnote that my whole family with the exception of me has since returned to Vegas. Really? Yeah. Well, so everybody's back in Vegas. I don't know about my biological father. I don't know where he is. Okay. But my mom has moved back there. My sister lives back there. My niece and my nephew were both born there. So, um, <laughs> and they're the, both the Vegas pole like 16 and 14. So they're actually going for it, man. They're actually, they wow. they're putting the work in, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're dying to leave. Um, sure. Sure. So yeah, we kind of just settled down in the Canal Valley. My dad was a car salesman turned subsequent real estate person, okay. and then uh, eventually. And why did they? Disappeared. What, yeah, why did you guys move out here then? Um, I think it had something to do with opportunity, sure, and mining for gold. And he heard some stuff was going on in California. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I can't. I can't really say. It well, yeah. I mean, you were five. You're not going. You're not going to remember, he, but. My dad was someone who really wasn't the best family provider. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something where even as kids, it was like, I, I mean, I, I just know, like, from what I hear about, from what my mom used to tell me, but mm-hmm. um, it was something where it was, you know, the house that I was born into was co-signed by my grandmother, and then my father sold it and kept the money and relocated uh. to California and tried to uh, start everything fresh and new out here when uh-huh. really in the back of my mind as I got older I could kind of look back on a lot of things and see that he was running sure. or something and yeah, yeah, yeah. getting away from a town that was heavily mob influenced at the time totally and uh, I um, by the way I don't tell many people this so I'm yeah. this right now <laughs> it's okay it's okay um, well no I could see I, well I could see the uh, the idea especially you know if he's if he's uh, quote unquote burning family members and I was like alright well let's let's go let's go yeah, to California we, we moved around a lot as kids <laughs> right and then um, when did he when did he become absent in your life uh, it was around the time that I was uh, in third grade so I guess okay. I would have been 12 or so is when my parents decided that they were going to divorce okay the the guys should stay together and the girls should stay together or where are the kids going to go discussion that was being had between oh, them yeah. and you know them to me and to my sister and, right 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 um him trying to be like a great guy like taking us out for right. a let's day go, down let's, to Santa Monica right. here and shit let's like go that. miniature golfing yeah, yeah yeah for sure exactly so um <laughs> Around that same time, we had to leave the one house that we were in because we couldn't pay the rent. We had to go move to another house that we were in, which was in uh, Thousand Oaks over by this junior high called uh, Lindero. Mm -hmm. uh, We kind of stayed there for a little while uh, as I got to be into about sixth grade. Okay. Um, My grandmother passed away okay who was my mom's mom sure um not my dad's mom she was absent most of my life as well okay but uh my grandmother passed away and left my mother somewhat of a small inheritance Mm -hmm. that um gave her the ability to kind of like well actually no it made my dad surprisingly fall in love with my mom again 
Oh, I see see the wrinkle there. They were going to stay together for the good of the family. Okay. So, But but you you had a feeling he had his eyes on a different prize, so to speak? Oh, I I know. (laughs) He was a a definite angler. Right, right, right. Um, So, basically, uh, long and the short of it is, he took about a year off from selling cars Mm -hmm. and got his real estate license. Um... Which, of course, required money. Of course. Which, of course, came from the inheritance. Right, 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 right. And uh, he got his real estate license and didn't sell a single house. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, the money itself ran out. Sure. And I remember coming home from school one day and uh, uh, coming in the house, and my mom was just, like, bawling, and she still had her pajamas on. And right. I was just kind of like... You're like, this, this isn't good, whatever this is. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... Uh, she begins to tell me, like, what happened, and I was just kind of like, oh, wow, you know, it's kind of heavy. Mm-hmm. So, after about a couple of days of living in a very uncomfortable house, I was at uh, school one day, and I left school, and my dad was picking me up, and he was like, you know, hey, let's let's go. So, I get in the car, and we start driving, and the next thing I know, I'm down by Latuna Canyon okay. on the freeway. Right. And he's like, like, we're not going home. What would you say if uh, we just left? Holy shit. And I was like... I kind of feel like we already did. Right, you know? right. We're, aren't we on our way now? Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, just a kid. That's and... terrifying, though. I mean, were you, like, did you like did you have an okay relationship with your father? Or was it one of those things where you were like, yo, I don't want to fucking live with this guy? Well, it was <laughs> an okay relationship to the point where I felt like he was my father and I should trust him. Sure. I was too young to really well, yeah, understand I, I... <laughs> what was happening in my family. Right. And pretty much raised in a way to think that this could be kind of okay. Right, right. So. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I, I am, after all, a kid. Even yeah. though I am 12, I am a kid. So, we start driving, and the next thing I know, we end up in Yuma, Arizona, and we start kind of, like, cruising through a bunch of different hotels, and um, we ended up in just kind of, like, the lower south of the U.S., and uh-huh. he was like, have you figured out at all where we were going yet? And I was like, well, I guess we're going to Florida. And as a kid... You know, just like driving across the country, seeing, you know, what's in front of you. Right. And he was like, why would you say that? And I was like, well, because it's probably the same closest climate environment to California. Right. And he was like, yep, that's right. That's where we're going. Oh, my God. So we ended up in Orlando, Florida. Okay. After maybe five days of driving through the South. But you were, I mean, you weren't, like, would you classify that as kidnapping? Like, you were, like, your, was your mom aware that you were going to be uh, driven across the country? <laughs> Oh my God! She's not. No. Yeah, that must have been um, a fun conversation. Not, not. I mean, not for you, but obviously with. Well, hey, I mean, hey, hey, we're in Florida. <laughs> there, there's some haziness to it. I can imagine. Thinking back on it, um, it all seems a little sketchy. Oh yeah. So well, and and above all, traumatic. I don't. I, don't, I can't think why. I mean, I'm sure part of it was like, oh, this is cool. Like I can take a road trip, but then you're like, wow, this is kind of really strange. Yeah. I don't think anybody else experiences this. Well, what was funny was we kind of ended up in this place. Uh, this apartment complex, this apartment community down there where we were on the lam. Right, yeah. I wasn't you, in school. No. I got, my dad gave me a skateboard, and I got to spend my days skateboarding and watching MTV. Right, That's which basically is... basically all I got to do yeah. as, like, a 12, 13-year-old kid. Right. Um, which, on one hand, is heaven, but you're just like, when's this other shoe going to drop? <laughs> well, it took about a month. Oh, my God. For that shoe to drop. 
he got a job at a car dealership down there and uh, apparently when he went to go cash one of his checks that sent a notification back to Los Angeles because of course my mom had opened up an investigation she hired a private eye and all this shit right um, about 24 hours or so later I'm at home 11.30 at night my dad's not home yet right and uh, we're I'm just sitting there watching TV and I hear like a knock at the door Yeah. and I get up and I look through the people and I don't know if you're old enough to remember the TV show Jake and the Fat Man I'm familiar with it yeah so that dude was at my door not him, but a dude that right, a dude exactly that like resembled that man. Right, right. <laughs> he had the glasses on his head. He had a cigar, and he was like, "You know, is your father home?" And I said, "No, he is at work." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Okay, well, we'll come back when he's home." And I was like, "Okay." So I shut the door. They go back down. He's sitting in his car. Of course, I call my dad, and I was like, "Hey, there's a guy here looking for you." Yeah. Uh, he asked if you were here. I told him you weren't. And he was like, okay, I'll come home. And he came home and they had a little conversation down in the parking lot. And okay. then he walks up to the apartment and he says, well, you have to go home or I have to go to jail. Oh, shit. And he was like, I don't want to go to jail, so I need you on a plane tomorrow. Wow. And I had to pack my pack my things and get on a plane back to California. Right. Where I was pretty much exposed to every single bad thing that had happened to my mom in the month that I'd been gone. Right. She was left borderline homeless. She had to go back to work. She she got to work. She she went to work in a church office. Yeah. And uh, she just basically like was doing everything that she could to try to at least be a provider. Right. And she was so happy to see me, but I was so confused by the fact that first I was gone and now I'm back and I was like oh, yeah, took yeah. Me away from my dad and right well you I mean you're, you're you're in the middle of this like impossible situation where it's just like you don't have the whole picture because no one's telling you and you're just like being like being told at the minute to do this thing yeah I mean it was a very turmoiled relationship for yeah. a long time and I mean being an adult now I kind of like look at how it's actually developed me as an adult, right, I right, all that stuff when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on one second. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, in a way, it kind of like it closed me off a bit. Of course, I or a lot. I can understand a lot of emotional feeling in a way. Well, yeah. Like, I try to be a very open and responsive person and a very understanding person but a lot of the time I just kind of like revert to sure when I was younger and I had to close off a lot of feelings because of what was going on in my life right right and I mean obviously that's not like the type of person I want to be I don't think that's how it is but um so anyway it's uh after bouncing around from a couple houses we ended up in this one place back down right next to actually where we used to live back on on Flores Mm -hmm. which is where uh I pretty much met most of the friends that I still have to this day and everyone in the band that I play with now. Right, right. For the last, like, 20 years, so... And all this stuff happened when you were, like, 12, 13, so it's, like, that's, like, right in the junior high, like, you're about to enter high school period, right, I think? Uh, It was at the end of when I was in sixth grade. Sixth grade, yeah. So it was right as I was getting into junior high school. Right. And is that when, uh, had music kind of entered your life already through skateboarding or was it, uh, did it, did it kind of start to Not come yet. about after that? Not yet. Um, it was, there were still a couple of years, like my junior high school years where I, um, I wouldn't 
I, I spent doing like a lot of maybe like not so good things, a lot more wrong things than I should have. Well, I, well, I'm I'm sure you were also experiencing the fact that you were just trying to make sense of all this stuff that you had just gone through as well. Well, it's funny because you know, um, I I pretty much skated through junior high school, and I don't mean like on a skateboard. I mean right, I just just, like just coasters. Yeah, yeah, give me some C's, I'm good. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it was fine, you know, like going into the high school public school system, but. Um, I would say like ninth grade is where I started to kind of discover a lot more um, punk rock and definitely a lot more hardcore. It was like, out of that entire group, it was like, one of my friends, Tony Moore, is like a lifelong friend of mine Mm -hmm. ever since I was maybe about sixth or seventh grade or so. Okay. And uh, we had more friends that kind of like came along and fell by the wayside, but as I got into high school, well, I met Andrew in junior high, but we hadn't been really good friends yet. And then mm-hmm. we started to become better friends as we got into high school because um, he knew more about punk rock and hardcore at that time than really any of us did. He yeah. was already going to shows and he was hanging out a lot with um, our drummer at the time, Sid. Mm-hmm. And they were you know, listening to a lot more punk rock back in those days. I was listening to like a lot of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Sure. And, uh, as, as most eighth and ninth graders do. Yeah. You know, it's pretty standard, right? As one does. <laughs> and, uh, we, you know, it was like, as we started hanging out more and started, you know, spending a lot more time skateboarding and stuff after school and going out, um, on school nights and not school nights and tormenting security guards through our youth <laughs> with this little neighborhood game that we used to have called Alpha Blue. I should tell you that. <laughs> Alpha Blue sounds incredible. <laughs> Alpha Blue is amazing. <laughs> we, um, my mom, as she was trying to provide for us, I ended up working two jobs and one would be a day job, one would be a night job. And she right. was working a night job bagging groceries at a grocery store. Right. Which pretty much took her into two in the morning, which meant that I was out almost every night until two in the morning. Right. Until you had to be home. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and our, the complexes that we lived in at the time had this security guard company called Alpha Blue. <laughs> yeah. So as we would pretty much kind of like develop these missions on how we could just just torment these security guards on a nightly basis right. who were clearly like they did not want to be in this position of being a security guard over this complex yeah. and the only thing that we wanted to do was really just get chased right, right. so <laughs> you just that was the mission we just would, get chased you know light a tennis ball on fire and throw it at their car <laughs> and we would go up into the grocery stores behind the condo complex and dig through the garbage, pull fruit out and just, just huck it out of like yeah, yeah. throw it at them until they just started chasing us. And right. the whole point was to ditch them. Right. And so one time we, you know, found out that we weren't really running from security guards. We were running from cops and the, they were a lot harder to ditch. Yeah, they- <laughs> and, and they have a lot more authority than, than your average security guard. Yeah, I mean, you know, when a cop knocks on your door at one in the morning and wants to know where your mom is and you tell her she's at work, you're kind of like, fucked. Oh, shit, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we used to take uh, stuffed animals and dress them up as people. Okay. Because <laughs> some of us, we had paper routes. And uh, we used to take... Uh, rubber bands and start linking things together like shirts and clothes as we would dress up teddy bears and right 
We would just kind of like lay them down on the sidewalk as cars would drive by. Oh, sure. And they think they're running over a person, right? Well, not running over. I mean, right. they would just be like on the side of the road, but they would drive by and screech and like kind right. of stop Scare- as we're like hiding in the bushes, snickering right. as kids. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to do um, stuff like that. So <laughs> they would just get out of the car, <laughs> run over to this would-be body laying on the side of the street. <laughs> oh, that's a teddy bear. That's a giant teddy bear. Yeah. You put a t-shirt on. I feel like I should start this whole thing over. Right, right. Um, <laughs> no, this is incredible. Um, it, you, it's just, it's pointers for uh, kids of the future. And Perfect. some guys would just pick it up and start yelling at us and t- yell like how we know, how they know we're watching them. Just <laughs> yeah. Toss the thing in the trunk and we would just bummed out because we'd have to start over. Of course. <laughs> You're like, damn it. It's gonna take forever. Yeah, I know. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. That's perfect. Being a kid for sure. Was it one of those things where it was pretty immediate? Like once you started to like go to shows, that this was like something that you really identified with. Like you were like, yes, this is it. <laughs> um, or were you just kind of like, oh, I'm along for the ride? Oh, uh, back on track. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about Alpha Blue for another forty minutes. Obviously, <laughs> I actually I could talk about Alpha Blue for the rest of the night. That's so that is one of the best memories of being a kid for me. Um, That's good. Running through my neighborhood streets at night with my friends was amazing. That's awesome. Um, yes, my first actual hardcore show was seeing Gorilla Biscuits instead and mm. Reason to Believe at the Country Club. Okay, yeah. And it was either December 7th or 14th. Okay. Um, a very long time ago. Sure, yeah. And <laughs> actually, I have it here somewhere. And um, I went to that show with, you know, our regular crew of friends that we hung out with. Were you like, like ninth grade, 10th grade at this time? Uh, I was in 10th grade. Okay, yeah. And... Um, I'd gone to that show. It was me, Andrew, Tony Moore, Sid, our friend Rob Bollinger, and uh, it was definitely a pretty big show, like for yeah. our area. Um, well, when you show at the Country Club, that was the one that was like Reseda, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Mike Machen, who is he became you know the bass player for the band Eyelid, mm-hmm. and um, I mean to me, like when I walked in there, that was one hundred percent one of the best things I'd ever seen in my life. I was. Right. Completely. I mean, my first concert ever as a kid was seeing Depeche Mode at Dodger Stadium. Right. And this was not Depeche yeah, Mode at Dodger pre- Stadium. Pretty, yeah, pretty intimate venue. Right. <laughs> um, we, uh, I mean, I just walk in there and the way the country club was set up, it was kind of like it had, you know, a little bit of a tiered floor and then it had a little bit, some tables set up behind the floor and then it had an open dance floor. And I just remember like being, you know, uh, 15 years old, just diving off tables into <laughs> yeah, yeah. a pit of people all <laughs> night long. Right. And uh, I guess, you know, that was kind of like my first stage dive was, I remember John Bunch was singing um, For Reason to Believe. Right. And I climbed up onto the stage. I did this, because it was a pretty good distance at the country club, like to mm. actually like clear some space. Right. So I, I get up on the stage, I run around him, I come back, I tapped him on the shoulder. Right. As and <laughs> just dove. And that was probably like my first legitimate stage dive right. as a kid. And you landed somewhat safely? I think so. That's yeah, good. it was fine, because we were just doing some fucking... Right. Dives off tables in the back <laughs> of the place all night long. Right, 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 right. But it was my greatest memory at a hardcore show as a kid because that's where I figured, you know, like I showed up at the show, like I was wearing a minor threat shirt, I was wearing some sort of like pegged printed pants and maybe high top fans. I don't even know if I was that cool at the time. <laughs> right. And I absolutely 100% knew that I did not fit into this walking into this place, but I 
You had, felt at home. I yeah, I had heard Gorilla Biscuits before. Right. I wasn't familiar. I might have heard instead at the time. I for sure maybe didn't hear reason to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say I was impressed. I was blown away by reason to believe. Yeah. Um, more people should listen to that band. Yes. But, um, yeah, it was. So that, but that that basically started you on your path, and then the. Uh, I mean, was Strife your actual first band that you ever played in? Yes. That's pretty. You're pretty lucky. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are in this because most can't. people most people play in awful bands beforehand. Which I mean, I mean, it's good that you got that experience of playing in a. Well, I mean, it's arguable that Strife was good immediately, but. <laughs> well, let me let me actually. <laughs> Do you do you have like your your hardcore archives on your on your laptop? Is that is that what you're referencing here? No, um, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, just dealing with show stuff. So that's fine. <laughs> going to that show, I was not in a band yet. I was right, not. Right, right. I had listened to some hardcore. I was listening to bands like Subhumans, No Means No, Dead okay. Kennedys, things like that at the sure. time, and that was my first exposure into a hardcore show right period yeah um at the time i was not straight edge Mm -hmm. and that opened my eyes to what the hardcore community and being straight edge was actually about it was walking in a blue place as probably the most wannabe looking punk kid you've ever seen in your life (laughs) from thousand oaks sure to feeling like they should be there Mm mm-hmm and it wasn't a feeling of being like cast out or glared at by people. It was a feeling of one hundred percent acceptance. And sure. I mean, granted, I was there with my friends, right? But it would be the feeling that I would want if I just happened to move to a place and caught wind of a show going on and walked into a club and saw that I can go here and be accepted. Right? I can listen. There were to other you. people like you, and it was yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just something where I I absolutely felt accepted in the scene and embraced, and that was really what opened my eyes to what hardcore was about right. and what hardcore should be was just one hundred percent a feeling of unity. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, back in those days, it was something where you can put any band on a bill from like you know Shelter to Split Lip to oh, Chromax. Yeah, it didn't matter. It and didn't matter any one of those bands arguably today like I couldn't look back if it was 2013 and ever call Split Lip a hardcore band yeah no but they were accepted right by the hardcore or Endpoint or anything yeah yeah exactly and it you know those were the things where you could just go to shows you could learn about new bands you could feel accepted you could meet friends not only from your city you can make ties in other cities and other states and you would do this thing called writing letters and right. you would say having pen pals yeah, yeah here's a demo of this this awesome local dude, band right it was how I found so much new music was just like can I tell you in like the mid to late 90s how many different copies of the burn demo I had to get <laughs> yeah yeah I would just be like fuck I wore this out you know right. uh, Justin Mulder can you please send me a new copy of this <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah or I would have to like 
write a letter to Chris Daly and be like, hey, I heard you have the burn demo. Can you please send this to right, me? Right, right. I did double this. And yeah. he would definitely send it over to me with a bunch of like eye for an eye and right. another wall and other, you know, Boston bands from that area and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. just be like, oh, you should really check this stuff out. And um, that's pretty much how kids back started, in those right. days got exposed to music. Oh, yeah, for sure. And... Well, it was it was its own form of social networking before there was devices to put those pieces together for you. Besides, yeah. I mean, there was a device. It was the mail. It I, takes. I mean, I would, <laughs> I would say I was a lot more fortunate growing up in the accessibility of going to shows because, you know, we were kids. We didn't drive, but yeah. every weekend we would find ourselves in Riverside or San Diego or Long Beach. And my second show that I ever went to... That was a hardcore show. Was Chain of Strength at Spanky's? Okay, yeah. And again, it was like stage dive mania. <laughs> right, right, you right. Know, it was fucking absolute dog piles, sing alongs, and right. just the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, sick of it all with Biohazard at Spanky's was the exact same, and then yeah. You know, all you just yeah, you just be, right. You just became you became immersed in it, and it's one of those things where it's like you know once. It's funny because it's like you obviously hear certain people. It's like you know, go, they go to a few shows, and then they're like, okay, that like that's cool, that's it. But then there's people like obviously you know us, where it's like we get exposed to it, and it's just like that's all I can think about. Yeah, <laughs> like that's all I really want to do. Yeah, at the time, that's absolutely what it was, and then uh, so. And why did you why did you choose bass? Because there was no one playing bass. In okay, so. Friends. I didn't get into <laughs> it's okay. how I got into Strike yet. So <laughs> it's okay. Um, we we were going to shows back in those days, and what we noticed that was lacking in our area was a hardcore scene. Oh, right. We had to drive to go see bands and whatnot. So we really wanted to bring uh, hardcore to Thousand Oaks in the Canal Valley. Right. Um, Andrew and Sid had been like just kind of like jamming out and practicing in Sid's bedroom mm-hmm. just kind of like putting songs together and stuff and they had known a, a guy from Newbury Park who was into hardcore he was straight edge and uh, he sang and mm-hmm. a band called Monster Club at the time okay. and his you know that's Rick right so they hit him up and said hey you know we're putting together a, a straight edge band and we want to know if you wanted to sing for it and he was like yeah totally you know I'll come down I'll check it out and uh, they, I can't remember if it was him who brought in the original bass player mm-hmm. or someone Andrew knew, but he was from Moore Park. So Rick was from Moore Park. I think it was actually somebody that Rick knew. Okay. And his name was Scotty Collin. Mm-hmm. And he was a straight edge kid from out there. And uh, he was playing bass. And uh, they put together a band called Stand as One. Right. Uh, they played a show at. Moore Park High School with Outspoken. Okay. Uh, that was the first, I believe, stand as one show. And it was awesome. I was in the front row. I had, <laughs> yeah. I had the fucking demo that I recorded <laughs> on a four track. Sure. Question mark, begin to care, all from the past. And uh, it was, uh, you know, just like, you know, a bunch of friends hanging out being like, wow, I, I got to drive like 20 minutes to go to a fucking bona fide hardcore show. This is amazing. And Outspoken's right. playing and my friends are up there playing right now. This is incredible. It was a lot right. of fun. So, uh, after that show, Scotty got into drugs. He started smoking weed. Mm-hmm. And so obviously he had to leave the straight edge band. Right. Um, 
and I was sitting at home one day and Sid calls me and he was like, Hey, uh, can you get your hands on a bass? And I was like, I guess, cause our friend Mike Schenkel had this, uh, sound gear or Ibanez or something like that. I was like, yeah, I can do that. Um, he was like, cool. We're going to be, uh, practicing down in our friend Tony's garage. Mm. And I was like, Oh really? Uh, okay. I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess something I right. that there that, uh, kind of maybe, I don't, I don't know why they thought I played baby. I mean, I, I, I had a <laughs> you're guitar. Like, you're like, I gave no indication besides me having this, this stringed instrument in my house. Well, I had a guitar <laughs> right? and I would play along to like downcast records and things okay. like that in my house. All right. So they were like, all right, call, call Chad up. He probably can play four strings. I couldn't tell you what a power chord was at that time. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just put my hand to a note and know that sure. maybe it sounded similar to what I was hearing. Right, right, right. So, sure enough, I uh, get a hold of uh, my mic space and I go down there and I plug in and Andrew starts to show me, like, the opening to All From The Past. Okay. And I think it becomes uh, immediately apparent yeah. that I do not Dude. know what is happening or right. what to do. You're like deer in headlights. He literally, right. Andrew literally puts his hand on a fret and a note and a string and goes, just hits it. There you go. And I just copied it the entire way. <laughs> Incredible. And um, that's pretty much how I've been playing bass for the last Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you just made it. How do you play that part again? Okay, cool. Awesome. No, it's exactly what it is. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, when it comes to hardcore, it's not rocket science, but they're, no. I mean, I... I play the bass in strife. Right. But I am not a bass player. Right, right, right. You you never you never would feel comfortable labeling yourself as a musician. No. <laughs> right. And and I think it's funny because most bass players that end up playing hardcore like you did like it's totally because they they already have guitarists. They're like, oh but who do we like to hang out? Chad, Chad's a cool guy to hang out with. Like, let's, uh, let's, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe at the time. You're friends. You I'm know? an okay guy. You're an okay guy. But you were okay enough to, put, to uh, play bass and put that together. Yeah, so... <laughs> uh, my first show with Stand Is One was in, I think, Jeff Moore, our friend Jeff Moore's garage. Okay. Um, it was a fun show. Yeah. A lot of fun. And then uh, after that, we drove up to Santa Barbara and we played a show at the barn. Oh, that okay. was the most awful thing you've ever heard. Sure. It might have been copying what Andrew was doing note for note. Right. I might not know have known what tuning was. Right, right. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. we all had some pretty shoddy equipment back then. We were actually all pretty out of tune at that show and sounded pretty god awful. Right, right. So we changed our name. And Really? Yeah. It was that bad that you're like, this shit I didn't know that. Well, you know, <laughs> I've never heard of a band be like, yo, yo, we were terrible. We got to change our name. We were changing our identity. You know, 20 years later, I don't have a problem talking about it. It was an absolutely bad show that okay. caused us to, uh, you know, pretty much Just, move from Stand as One and become right. Strife. Okay. Um, but at the same time, it also kind of refocused us into what we were doing as kids turning into adults. Right. Putting out our first seven inch on New Age, New Age Records right, right. was uh, obviously a really big deal to us because we loved everything Mike Hartsfield was doing, and he was pretty much the hardcore label. Oh, totally. When we sat down to record those songs, and we were like, 
know. Who also really put this awesome. out with the crowd, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Did and you I, did you at, at that time? Because like so, I mean, because Strike pretty much hit the ground running as far as like you know you guys you guys became known very well within Southern California and obviously arguably the West Coast once you guys started to get out there. Um, at this time, like, did you? Like, did you give a shit about school? Like, did you were you like, yo, I can't wait to graduate and tour and do this? Or were you like, oh, I would love to be a real estate agent? <laughs> you know, did uh, you have sights on other things like that? I mean, school is never really that important to me to begin with. I, right. I went to a couple years of college, and I was psyched by the fact that my college had a Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would look forward to. <laughs> right. Is, so that shows how committed you were to your studies. I, I was a... <laughs> journalism slash business major right. that really looked forward to breaks at college hanging out with my friends right right and sitting in classes was a fucking nightmare to me right it was how many years did you do of college two two ish maybe three i did uh i was in seattle university for a year and i went to Moorpark college for a year okay got it uh, no, two years. I was at Moorpark College for two years and Seattle University for one year. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle University was the uh, cause of a minor freakout slash hiatus that I took from Strife okay. to uh, move up to the Pacific Northwest oh, okay. for about a year or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know there was there was, there was a... Uh, but, I mean, was Strife touring at the time? Like, they were... Well, they were, and that was kind of... A little bit of the reason at the time that I took off was because uh, it was, you know, coming up on me living at home, we had just confirmed a U.S. tour with Earth Crisis that we were leaving for, like, almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And probably two days, or I would say two days before that, maybe, I had thrown all my stuff in the back of my truck and drove up to Seattle. Oh, okay. So... Um, they showed up at my house to pick me up to leave for the tour, and my mom said, uh, he isn't here, he's gone. I would have fucking killed you. Well, (laughs) there there were definitely angry feelings there. So I I just, like, like, knowing, like, always being the business guy in the bands that I've played in, and, like, putting all that shit together, and then being like, oh... Where the fuck are you, Chad? What the shit? Well, you have to keep in mind that cell phones didn't exist at that right. time. Right. If you wanted to oh, get so a hold is... of somebody, you'd have to get them on a landline. I'm not driving up and my phone rings and right. they're like, where are you? I'm like, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Where are you? Where, where, yeah, where are you? Oh, well, that's you right. Would, we're going to go on tour. Right. Yeah. You would literally have to know right. where I was at. So, wow. Um, they, had, they didn't have any idea. And, I, you know, it was a yeah. shitty, shitty fucking thing for right. me to do, but... You had to do it. I wasn't, I just wasn't sure at the time that this is what I wanted. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's, it's always a scary thing when push comes to shove where it's just like, okay, am I dedicating my life towards this, this, this theoretical band that like, there's no, at that time, there's no precedent. You guys weren't looking at it being like, oh dude, like there are these bands that have existed and have two, I mean, you have sick of it all. That's like the, the main band that everyone points to in that era that can be like, oh, you can make a living out of playing hardcore. Yeah. That's not, that's. Well, it, it was, you know, it was something where it was like, we had already been touring. We had right. just finished like an East Coast tour that we did with a few shows with Undertow. We played some shows with Mouthpiece and we came back. We, we, we had definitely done some stuff by this point. Right. And 
the the momentum had built, but it was still scary. I'm sure. Yeah. Which is obviously what led you to what you did. Well, the girl that I was dating at the time decided that she was going to pack up and move to Seattle, and I was kind of like in a really fucked place in my mind. Right. Right. I was like, well, you're moving to Seattle, and I'm supposed to leave on tour in like three days. Right. And so I just kind of closed that gap and left for Seattle in two. Sure. And uh, I, I. and then I you made were, the obvious wrong choice. Yeah, yeah. The and then to, but then you were able to get back into the good graces of everybody. They understood where you were coming from and the crisis you were going through. Yeah, mentally. it was. I, you know, I'd moved up there and I'd been hanging out with like the Undertow kids and stuff. And some of us started a band called Nine Iron Spitfire. And right. I was still playing music, and I uh, cheated my way through playing guitar at that time. Right. Which was funny. Right. Because um, well, Nine Iron, Nine Iron Spitfire, to be fair, pretty sloppy. None. You're, you're welcome. Right. <laughs> I mean, that, and that was part of the charm with Nine Iron Spitfire, well, but... That was yes. kind of a foundation that Damien and I had started at the time, was we just wanted to be fucking noisy. Yeah, yeah, oh, I mean, we, we accomplished. Did a, yeah, yeah. I did a band before that with uh, Corey Sabatini and our friend Seahag up there called Dead Skin Mask. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I didn't I did know you played. A couple things with, and then yeah, yeah. we moved. I moved into... Uh, uh, Nine Iron Spitfire and we started up that mm-hmm. and I did a couple shows with that um, I got a phone call one day from Tony Brown, and he was like hey uh, you need to move back to California <laughs> and I was like okay I had never thought that I was going to at that time, I, I understood how pissed off my friends were at me. Of course. You know, it's like they drove straight to the East Coast. I think Todd was filling in on bass, and then they met up with Earth Crisis, and Ben Reed filled in on bass on some shows, and um, it, it was yeah, it was awful. quite a thing for right. a little bit of a tour. He's like, yeah, but, you know, when they're done with this tour, you need to be back in California, and mm-hmm. uh, Rejoins are going to call you, and uh, hopefully we can work some shit out. And we were able to talk on the phone, and... Um, I just, you know, while I was still out there, I started reconnecting with all my friends, and once again, I threw my shit in the back of my truck, and I drove back down to L.A. because I wanted to be with my friends again. Right, right. I was kind of just done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, if we're we're cool now, then we're cool. (laughs) Well, it wasn't so much, you know, it was just like, I I realized that that's where I wanted to be, and I had made the wrong choice. Sure, sure. It wasn't a band thing. It wasn't a... Uh, feeling lonely in the Pacific Northwest or anything like that. I just wanted to be with my friends again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I go back down and uh, I sat in one practice and then uh, we did a show with uh, Sick of It All, Orange 9mm, and Corn mm-hmm. in Orange County. And that's from that moment on, it was just like that's where it was. Right, right. Um, That's what you did. I mean, there was the obvious breakup, like a few, you know, year, of years later. Right, 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 right. But um, I, I'd never really ever wanted to be a part of anything else, right? More than I'd wanted to be like just playing in a band with my friends until things got, you know, a little too crazy and we had to step back a little bit. Right. Well, the 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 thing that I always was so interesting about, you know, what you guys did, because it's like, you know, you look at the, I mean, I I refer to it as the big three, where you could argue it's like, you know. Strife, Snapcase, Earth Crisis, the bands that obviously made a substantial impact in the mid-90s, and it's like, each of those bands went off to obviously do their own specific thing, whereas Earth Crisis, like, you know, they they had moments of, uh, you know, some sort of mainstream appeal from playing Ozfest and Roadrunner and all that stuff, Um, and then, but you guys seem to always have this, like, incremental build 
Um, but you didn't stylistically change yourself, whereas, like, obviously, like, an Earth Crisis didn't change themselves either. Snapcase was dramatic. Um, I would say that there's a big change between that's Firestorm 7-inch and the All Out War 7-inch to Gamora Season then. That's true, that's true. Um, Definitely way more metallic. However, it's it's a working change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you, you are right about that. It's like kind of like between Strife, Snapcase, I would say even Hatebreed. That's true, um, yeah. Earth I always put Hatebreed just a, a smidge later, but yeah, still. They are later, but yeah, yeah. as a, I mean, as a, one of the more notable bands to come out of Victory Records, they of course. have definitely maintained their style and sound for as longer than any of us now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they for sure. put out far more records and... But the, the thing that struck, especially when you guys released In This Defiance, it was one of those things where it's like, that to me was like the, um, you know, that was like the market point where you were like, okay, we can be viewed as a band that plays outside of this proverbial hardcore scene. Well... I mean, whether or not that was the intention is a different story, but that was kind of like what I viewed, where it's like, okay, this, they, like, they could be a metal band, for lack of a better term. Those days, you were actually preaching to the choir when you would come out there and talk about how you're a straight-edge band. Right. And this is what it means to be drug-free. Right. This is what it means to have unity at your shows. You're pre- you're preaching to the converted. Exactly. Right, right, right. So, or or converted and or already aware. Like, and we're good with that. Sure, we would get out there and, you know, say things like, we're straight from Los Angeles and we are a straight-edge band. Yeah. Because we'd be like, fuck yeah, you know, right? Of course. And that would be pretty much show after show after show and you can go out there and put yourself up against any crowd when you're doing a show back in those days and when you're playing a hardcore show you will get the reaction you're looking for nine times out of ten of course or you can drive up to Sacramento and play a show with Incubus right right and say like we're straight from Los Angeles and we are a straight edge band right cricket (laughs) yeah totally totally and then you can start talking to people about what hardcore is and of what course. straight edge means to you and how it can benefit, you know, going to a hardcore show and understanding new forms of music without having to go and see the same thing all the time. Right. And absolutely, again, nine times out of ten, you may not get the reaction you're looking for. Right. But you're going to talk to anywhere from 15 to 20 kids after the show that said, hey, man, I really dug what you guys were about. and. Right. I, I'd love to check out more of this. Where can I find this? Right. And it really was just about not trying to talk to 500 people at a time that already know what you're about, but it was really about trying to reach like the five or 10 people at a time. Of course. You're, no idea right. You're scooping up these people that were, that were completely unsuspecting of whatever this scene was and then appealing to that and then being able to bridge that gap that other bands either weren't interested in or were not willing to play to those audiences. And like, that's what I always, I so distinctly remember like seeing you guys with like voodoo glow skulls one week. And then, and then like, you know, a month later seeing you with like, you know, your typical hardcore show. And that's what it always appealed to me. That it's like, that's fucking great. that You guys can play with all of these types of bands and be able to still feel somewhat at home, even though the audience is like, I mean, I definitely remember playing, you know, voodoo glow skull shows being, really rough on you guys besides the 30 kids or so that were up front dude we but, played so many ska shows you right. have no idea we which is so like hilarious San Bernardino with meal ticket <laughs> back it was like that's what you did yeah I guess you know, I was to play to different people like you were saying um it, uh, what show was last night um <laughs> phosphorescent 
Phil from FYF was at the show last night. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we were standing outside talking for a while. He's like, hey, man, remember when you played the showcase with AFI? And I was like, yes, I do. Of course I do. It was my birthday. Right. <laughs> and I remember that show vividly. He was like, this is my first time seeing you. I had drugged to that show by Sean Carlson, who does FYF. Yes, yes. And uh, he was like, Sean convinced me that if I drove him to the show, he would get me into the show. He knew someone that would get us in. Right. And sure enough, we drive out to that show, and Sean has no ticket. No ticket. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he's like, sorry, dude, I don't know what to tell you. Right. And he's like, that fucking guy, man. In, tip- in typical Sean Carlson fashion. Yeah. Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's just like, that fucking guy. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. he's like, but I got in to see you guys, man, and that was one of the first times I ever saw you play, and I'll never forget it. Right, right, right. And I mean, you know... I love Sean to death. I love Phil. <laughs> but talking to people that far down the line later who you don't know from that capacity, because, I mean, I, I met Sean at a show when he was just a kid. Right. And I'm pretty sure he was drunk. Of course. And uh, <clears throat> But Phil, I, I never really met until years later, and having somebody come up and talk to you about it outside of how they know you, like he knows me as a right. guy that works for Golden Boys. Golden Boys, right. Having him tell me that was just kind of like rad, dude. You know, right. it's like when you were that young, there, there's just something there about it. Right. And AFI, you know, they were a, a punk band from the Bay Area. Of course. Time, and not really something that a hardcore band would play with, but we... You guys, you guys like, like you said, you guys always stretch yourself in ways that I saw other bands just not interested in doing because they didn't have... Like, you guys seem to have an agenda of ultimately challenging yourselves to play to that broader audience. Yeah, it didn't really make it more interesting because we just loved being in the band and we loved playing the shows. But if we were going to get up there and be a straight-edge band and we're going to spread a message about leading a cleaner lifestyle, it was something to us that had to be spoken to a broader audience. Right, right. Um... The funny thing about all that, too, all during that time... Is that I'm sitting here drinking beer right now? This... <laughs> well, no, that's... I mean, that's funny. This right? was a long... This was a few... This was years ago. But the, the, no judgments. The... But... No judgments, but there were judgments for you guys at that time because it was like... I just remember... Because I didn't... I never put bands in the context of, like, the the scene, in the sense of, like, obviously I knew they from a hardcore scene, and that's cool, but, like, the politics of it, where it's like, okay, the word sellout in regards to, like, oh, like, Strife is playing all these fucking, like, mainstream shows, whatever, like, Incubus, and all these other things that you were doing outside of the proverbial scene, that's when people started to, uh, at least I, when I noticed, where it's like, oh, Strife are a bunch of sellouts, and, you know, they're doing all these things that... Fucking A. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like, the... Was it one of those things you guys just obviously... I mean, it didn't affect you. You guys just kind of took it stride? Um, or you chose to ignore it? I would say that we had to kind of like... Not really prove ourselves more than others. Mm-hmm. But look, one of the reasons that we started to veer from playing atypical hardcore shows at that time and trying to mix bills up and trying to get involved with other bands was because not only we wanted to spread the message, but there was also a change in the hardcore scene that started to lean more towards violence right. as an acceptable form of expression. Right. Which is not something that we were into. Right. We come from a time of positivity yeah, yeah. and unity and not like 
hey, let's kick the shit out of that meddler over there. Right. Because he's got long hair and a Slayer shirt on. Right, exactly. Um, not that that would happen today. Right. Uh, we definitely moved past that. <laughs> right, right, Slayer right. is very accepted. <laughs> yes. But <clears throat> it was something that we didn't really want to associate our band with. Right. We wanted to associate our band with being a positive influence on hardcore. We wanted to spread a very positive message and not a message of militants or hate. And I think the thing that didn't steer people's attention from us but made them judge us a lot harder was it was like, well, Earth Crisis are vegan and they're straight edge. Well, what are you? You're just, you're a straight edge band. Yeah. What else do you, what are you, are you political? Right. You know, like. That's true. That's true. Um, so you, it just seemed like at that time you had to always just bring something more to the you table. Did, yeah, you didn't, yeah. You didn't, yeah. band. That's true. You didn't have the, you didn't have these philosophical layers that people could peel away and be like, oh yeah, they're, the, the, we can put them in these three different boxes. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like I love Earth Crisis. I always have. And I always will. I think they're great people. Car rolled out to our show in Syracuse last weekend. And yeah. It was rad to see him. Yeah. A lot of kids from that scene still stay in touch, like DJ and Guav, and right. a lot of good, a lot of good friends were made through times like that. But we never really like saw eye to eye on um, a lot of things, like where we were coming from. Like Straight Edge never had to be a militant thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was funny. Rick was telling a story as we were driving to our next show in Albany, mm-hmm. where he was like, you know, I, I just remember having this conversation with Carl years ago, where we were just taking a walk down the street, and Carl's like why don't you hate everybody like that doesn't do this? Right. And Rick just was like, why did, why do you, you know, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. they've always Turned had in. a very open relationship conversationally where they could talk things like this. Out. No one's mind is ever going to change between no. the two of them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Rick is one of the most insightful, deepest and thoughtful people I've ever known in my life mm-hmm. to where, you know, He's, you know, just uh, he's just an all-around great dude, and right. I, I believe Carl's the same too. But um, there are just people that are just absolutely stuck in how they think and how they feel, and it's not really a badge that they wear anymore. Right. It just is something that's inundated in them. Sure. To where it's like so natural now. Right. To to move forward, like I, I mean, even. Later on down the road, it was like, even when we were mixing up bells and playing with different bands and stuff like that, it was like Earth Crisis was going on tour with metal bands. Of course, yeah, yeah. You guys were definitely both doing, like, sim- you had similar uh, similar focal points in what you were trying to do with your, I mean, because at this point, both of the bands were your guys' careers, and it's like you were yeah. attempting to do things differently. That's where it got bad, man. Right. <laughs> as soon as the band started to become a career, it's just when it got really bad. Right, that's what obviously became... And it became very immediately apparent to at least just like, you know, the outside world where it's like when you guys distinctively became like unhappy, like you could just tell when the band was just not, not, not at its finest. You know what makes things absolutely the worst for bands? Huh? Managers. Yeah. No, no offense, managers. <laughs> no but, offense. Um, I have friends that manage bands and stuff, but. <laughs> you're like, you're you the know, worst, you're ruining your bands, yeah. Being no, I, I I think nowadays there's band, there's managers that are doing great things like Biggie and Good Fight are absolutely wonderful managers. Yeah. Back in those days, uh, typical manager of a hardcore band didn't exist. No. If you got a manager, you got a fucking manager. Right. Who also possibly managed Dancehall Crashers or Hepcat or No Means No. Right. And they didn't understand your band. No. And all they wanted to do was work your band. 
Get the money completely. That, right. Yeah. They course. wanted you on the road no less than ten days out of every given month. Right. And when you, you're just making absolutely nothing doing it and taking off, you know, two three weeks from whatever job is going to let you do that. Right. 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 Um, it was a gigantic pain in the ass. Right. And uh, do you remember the distinct tour that was just basically like? Yeah, we were playing a few shows with. I want to say it was AFI and Good Riddance. Okay. And uh, we did a show at the Huntridge in Vegas. Oh, yeah. And as soon as that show was done, so was I. And right. so was Sid. And we it, it was just this, like, unspoken, just this unspoken understanding that just kind of laid over. I just feel that we kind of, as a band, and I think we all, you know, we, we talked about it later on, and we all kind of, like, felt the same way where we just lost the focus of what we were doing. It wasn't fun anymore. Right. It wasn't the same reason of why we started the band. Right. And we parted ways for a while. Yeah. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened to us. Oh, of course. I mean, fuck, like some of the anger means record. Right. It was the best thing that, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I I actually love that record, by the way. You're like, I'll stand by it. (laughs) I I will absolutely stand by it. That's good. It was something that, um, was born out of what we didn't expect to come out of us at the time. It was right. when we started to get back together and reassociate ourselves with each other after not being in a band for a while. Right. Once again, Sid and Andrew started playing together again. Right. And they put together a project called Anger Means. Right. And they tried out a few different singers where it ended up being that Rick was the yeah, guy Rick's that was going to sing for that band. Right. And there was kind of a revolving door of guitar players and bass players where Todd was playing guitar for a little while. Right. Franklin from Shelter was playing bass for a little while. Mm-hmm. Then I was playing bass for a little while. Right. And our friend Tom Bale, who no one really knows, was playing guitar for a little while. Right. And then, uh, unfortunately, there was... Uh, accident that happened to one of our very good friends and a friend of ours that was on the road with us for a great number of years, our friend Jesse, where he was struck and killed by a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. And it was probably one of the hardest things we've ever had to go through. It was really our only first experience with losing one of our friends and our best friend at that. And this guy was with us in Europe. He was everywhere. He was everywhere we went. And um, when when that happened, it hit us really hard. And uh, sure enough, um, we wanted to do something to help out the family with funeral costs. Sure. So we put together a couple shows. One was at the Whiskey, and then one was at the now defunct Key Club. Right. In Hollywood, and they were with Downset, and uh, we decided that we were going to do the shows of Strife. A lot of kids took offense to this. Right. Because we had played some shows as Anger Means, and Anger Means was... Uh, you know, a band that might, may or may not have been something that we were going to do, but to be perfectly honest with you, I don't fucking care. Right. It was something where we got up on stage and we decided to do whatever the fuck we were going to do and do what was best for the memory of our friend. Of course, there's a reason behind it. Yeah, and um, it was, again, one of the most right feelings I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And the band itself it was uh something that felt just pure right right um so 
we took the songs that we had written as Anger Means and kept writing more and more songs. Right. And it's like, you know what the funny thing is about that record? It's like, it is so incredibly awfully recorded. It is the worst recording. Yeah. Ever. It, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty fucking bad. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> um, and there's songs on there that could be awesome fast songs there's great songs with great breakdowns it's uh it's right the record itself isn't poorly written there's some questionable stuff yeah yeah, yeah. There, there, <laughs> of course there right. was certainly well, some we, questionable we, things you guys were it was a very mm-hmm. weird time for the band so it's it's understandable how uh random things may have come out that may not have typically popped its head in yeah i we were kind of writing without any limits at that point right so we just decided to start kind of like putting into the record whatever we wanted to feel like Um, and we went in to record it it came out like dog shit and we had begun a tour actually in support of that record and we ended up in Chicago and we went to Victory and we asked Tony we're like hey you know so what do you think about remixing this album Mm -hmm. it was like what it sounds fine I'm putting it out (laughs) and we're like you right. don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not going to go over well. Right. Like, we tried, man. We tried so <laughs> fucking hard to get that thing redone, and he just... Just there was didn't, Not nothing, interested. Not interested. Not one bit. Yeah. So, uh, sure enough, that thing came out, and it was received terribly. Yeah. I, it got some good reviews, like, here and there, and there are kids that still want to hear songs off that record, right. and we still occasionally play, like, one or two of them. One or two of them, yeah, yeah. And I like them, and they sound a lot better live than they do on record. I can tell you that much. But <laughs> right. given the right chance, that record could have been a lot better. But, you know, we kind of let it slide, and we, yeah. we sat back on it for a little while, and we just continued playing a lot of the stuff off of One Truth and In's Defiance. Right. Um, and kept touring off of that for a little while after we got back together, and then had a feeling uh, that we were just kind of going out and going through emotions of yeah. every reunion band that's out there like oh you want to get together and play the songs that the kids want to hear and you're really not giving them anything new and you're going to Europe why right. why are you going to Europe <laughs> here's the third summer in a row we're doing go, festivals yeah, 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 yeah. you go to Europe when you have something new to support and you go to Japan when you have something new out there and you 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 give the kids something new to, to listen to right but most importantly we wanted to get out there and show these kids that you know, it didn't stop with One Truth and Innocent Defiance. Right, exactly. We wanted to show them that we can actually, like, produce something more than that. And of course. we, to stay, like, interested and involved in it, really just wanted to put out a new record. So Andrew started writing a shitload of songs. And, I mean, even when we weren't as active as a band, even when we got to be touring as a band again, Andrew is at most shows that yeah. go on in our area I go to you know whatever shows I can when I can right. aside from you know the 175 I do here you right. know, it's something that he is still very much immersed and active and involved in the hardcore scene and he has just been writing and writing and writing and he's like like, oh well you know I've got these I've got 20 these songs, songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let me uh, he sends them over to us and we start like checking them out and everything and he started uh piecing a bunch of them together with uh, Nick Jett who produced our record right um, and Witness the Rebirth was was the product was, of it yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 
the record that you guys put out Witness Rebirth is, is honest. I mean, like, no matter no matter what you say about anything that's else is, that's attached to it, is that it's honest and people see why you guys did it. And like they're like you were alluding to earlier, with any negative feelings that people may have had towards strife in regards to whatever the motivations were, not a straight edge man, doesn't like whatever all that is tied into it, you guys have outlived that criticism. I mean I'm sure it still comes in, but it's much it's much quieter than it has. Well, the thing that worked for and against us is there was an underlying criticism when we stopped being a straight edge band. Right. And there was a lot of blowback when we put out anger beans and it was just kinda like, Oh, you're not a straight edge band anymore, you put this new metal fucking record. Right, right. And then when we, you know, sat down and actually started focusing on Witness a Rebirth and going in the studio, like, we'd played enough shows in the interim, enough time had passed that we pretty much felt that whatever backlash we experienced for not being the band that we quote-unquote were anymore had passed. Yeah. But the thing is, we're never going to be the band that we were, and I'm hoping that most bands out there are never going to be the band that they were. Right. I'm not looking at, you know, a band like Madball 20 years later saying like, man, why aren't you fucking Madball anymore? It's right. Like you are Madball. Yeah, yeah, And you have evolved right. over how many years you've been a band. And, you know, the hopes are that you will continue to put out albums, you will continue to tour, and people will continue to be interested in what you do. Of course. With Strife, it was something where we wanted to just put this record out only really to give the kids something new to listen to. Right. It is a real record for us in the term that it is the best of in this defiance, it is the best of one truth, but it is the record that we wanted to put out again. Where every record that we've done is something that it's been the record that we wanted to write and put out. Right. And Anger Means falls in that category as well. Um but Witness of Rebirth was something that carried a pretty heavy message mm-hmm. that was directed directly at the hardcore scene. Right. And it wasn't so much like a rebirth of strife, which is, you know, a slight misconception of the title. Right. It's a rebirth actually of the hardcore scene. Sure. Because we've gone through quite a few evolutions right 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 you've seen yeah you've seen it evolve over the years and the way that it is right now with bands that are at least keeping the spirit of hardcore alive from bands that came before them bands like Terror Backtrack Down to Nothing Alpha Omega that can at least continue playing real hardcore music to real hardcore kids and spreading a message of what true hardcore is all about is what the rebirth is. Right. It's kind of like saying from bands like instead Gorilla Biscuits and everyone that came before us, that was a nice path that was laid, but there was also a generation of Hatebreed, Snapcase, Earth Crisis, and Strife that came after that. Right. And now we're kind of into like a third wave, if you will, of, of hardcore course. that is a lot of more up-and-coming bands that really do have the responsibility of taking hardcore into the next generation. Yeah. And what's awesome about it is is new bands now, I think, are born more frequently than they were back when we were doing bands. For sure. 
it's like you would have to sit back and wait for bands like Warzone to come through your town and play a show where now hardcore is like we were talking about earlier just way more readily accessible right and you can check out bands from everywhere right Um, I mean the best advice that we've ever given anybody that has the desire to like let me rephrase that I would would say my favorite question in an interview is what advice would you give to somebody that wants to start a band right start a band start a band yeah it's pretty simple you know it's uh well, how do you get out there and play shows? Yeah. You just play shows. Right. I mean, you, you grow your band, especially right. to make it the, you know, the band that you want it to be, hopefully at a grassroots level. Right. And it's funny, I had a, one of my stagehands was uh, working the show yesterday, and he's not a guy that works here very often. I've seen him around from time to time, and I had literally just flown in from doing shows on the East Coast the night before. And um, he's got a jacket on that says American Straight Edge across the back of it. And uh, he's loading in one of our bands that's playing that night. And I'm standing outside and comes up to me and he's like, hey man, are you guys playing with Judge this weekend? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's awesome. I was like, I don't know, you know, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I was like, we did a black and blue bowl with them. Right. Uh, a few months ago, and uh, it was something that I never thought I would see ever. Ever again. Andrew is the only one in our band I think that's seen Judge. I don't think Rick's seen Judge, but um, anyway, I was like, yeah, it's going to be a fucking blast. I'm totally looking forward to it. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. And he starts to get into talking about how he's from San Diego and he does shows down in San Diego. And he was like, you know, down in San Diego, it was like, we don't really mess around with a lot of clubs or anything like that. We just play in sewers. And I was like, can I come play in the sewer? <laughs> yeah. I was like, what do you guys do? Do you bring in generators, you know, right, right. and some lights, maybe? Right. He was like, yeah, you know, it's totally, we just, that's all we do. We just do that. And I was like, I fucking want to do that. Right. Can I just go down there and play like <laughs> just a play real sewer. goddamn show right. in your sewer? Right. You're like, this is perfect. This is where I want to be like, right at this point. Yeah, we can do that. And... You know, it's just like, to me, people like that that are looking to pop up hardcore shows wherever they can in, in sewers. Yeah, exactly. Is, right. I mean, that, that's, not, that's what, it's that's definitely what, not the most glamorous thing, and I'm sure no. it's not what most people think about when they start a band, but it's definitely something I want to do these days. Yeah, exactly. It's like having, having those fun experiences. Well, uh, Chad, I appreciate you uh, letting me bend your ear for longer than I originally anticipated, but you had a great story, so kept it going. Are we done? <laughs> We're done. Pretty fun, right? His childhood story is crazy, right? I felt like I could have talked for another like hour and a half about that. I digress. Visit propertyofzack.com. Visit 100wordspodcast.com. The editor, as always, is the beautiful Tom Richfield for this episode. Happy holidays, everybody. There will be a very, very special episode for the next one, the infamous year-end list, where we're talking to uh, some previous guests of the show. We're having a little roundtable talking about our favorite records, movie, TV, that sort of stuff. So be prepared. It will be quite a long episode, because I think the previous ones have lasted, I don't know, hour and a half, close to two hours. So bear with us but you'll become educated about you know our favorite music so thank you for joining us and until next week be safe everybody Stay,